as I said earlier, I don't know many of you and we don't have a long history together, but I do have a deep affection for what God has done and is doing in the life of the Springs Reformed Church. An affection for you, saints set apart in grace. It was probably about 70 years ago, a young K-State University student invited my father, a high school boy, to a weekend. They grew up together in Quinter, Kansas, and Bob Mann led my father to assurance of salvation. I used to have the little testament where my dad had written this down. And so you've come a long way since meeting in Bob and Ruth's living room, and I'm rejoicing with you in the prospect of a new building and a new chapter in your life, a new pastor in God's good time and providence to lead you and guide you. I will continue to keep you in my prayers and want you to know that uh, Paul's prayer here in Philippians is a prayer that I've been making my own for you and for the other saints in churches that I am acquainted with. So please turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. I'm going to read the first 11 verses, although we're focusing on verses 9 through 11, and as I said, I'm reading from the New King James Version. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of, all, of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you with the affection or literally the tender mercies of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The Apostle Paul is writing from prison in Rome. It's been about ten years since he was there to establish the first church in Europe under his ministry as an apostle. He'd seen a vision of a Macedonian man crying out, come over and help us. And so he and Silas and Timothy sailed across and began their journey throughout that area, arriving in Philippi. Because it was his custom to speak first in the synagogues or to go to the synagogues and meet with the established Jewish fellowship, uh, he went down by the river since evidently there was no synagogue. They the uh, Jewish believers were there worshiping by the river. 
We're told that God opened Lydia's heart. And there's the first name that we know that's on his heart. She was a business lady. And God opened her heart to the word of God and to obey. And she was baptized with her family. And then over the course of the next days, as they were going back and forth, having been invited to stay with Lydia in her home, a slave girl that had this gift of or spirit of divination kept following them and saying, these men are uh, servants of the Most High God. And finally, when Paul was frustrated, he said he rebuked the spirit and commanded her to commanded it to come out of her. The owners of this slave girl lost their source of income, and they were angry and brought Paul and Silas to the authorities. They were beaten with rods and thrown into prison. And you know the story of the Philippian jailer, the man who was charged with the responsibility of guarding them and keeping them secure. He put them deep in uh, to the inner uh, prison, put their feet in stocks, and was confident that they were secure. About midnight, when Paul and Silas were singing hymns, praises to God. God sent an earthquake and the chains fell off, the doors opened, and the jailer assumed that everyone had walked out of prison and that he would pay with his life, and so he was prepared to fall on his own sword when Paul cried out, don't do yourself any harm, we're all here. This man overcome with a sense of, of his own guilt and sinfulness and need of a Savior said, what must I do to be saved? He, of course, was baptized with his household and they became members of that congregation. And over the years, elders and bishops were elected and uh, deacons, elders or bishops and deacons were elected and they were, were leading the congregation. Paul came back to visit at least twice more during those years. Paul speaks of these people as being in his heart and having deep affection for them. We can assume that perhaps uh, this involved Lydia and her family and the Philippian jailer and his family and others. Perhaps even that slave girl came to faith in Jesus Christ. But Paul here is writing to thank them for their gifts and their support, their partnership in the gospel. But also he's concerned about this natural tendency in our sinful human nature to be divided and to find uh, cause for offense. He mentions Euodia and Syntyche. We don't know what their disagreement was, but he prays, he asks for them to help them to work it out. And as our brother Keith prayed so uh, eloquently this morning, we all sin in thought, word, and deed every day of our lives. And we need grace from God to be forgiving or to forgive one another as we have been forgiven. We need grace to do that. And he urges them to work on being a team, to strive together. He brings these things out in this epistle, but at the foundation, he prays that their love would abound still more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with all the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ 
to the glory and praise of God. He's concerned about what we would call biblical love. Not love in a general sense, a sentimentality that the world knows, but a love that reflects the love of God in Christ. A love that is uh, conforming ever more and more to the standard of Christ's example. Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. He set the example for us to follow in his steps. In another place, Paul says in Romans 13.10, love is the fulfillment of the law. The law sums up the righteous character of God. And Jesus is the, the end of the law, the, the goal of the law. Jesus in the flesh reveals for us the fullness of the law of God, to love God with all our heart and our neighbor as ourselves. To get a grasp on this biblical love, we need only to read passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I'll read just a brief bit of that reflecting on Paul's magnificent summary of love. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. In a series of sermons published under the title Charity and Its Fruits, Jonathan Edwards preached the final sermon under this title, Heaven, a World of Love. I remember reading that sermon, happened to be on the occasion of our uh, wedding anniversary. It made me think about my, my, the love of my life. But Edwards does a magnificent scribing in there that in heaven, although there are different ranks, and although we are each different and unique, there is love perfected among us. Those who are, quote, superior in rank have a greater capacity perhaps to uh, grasp the glory and beauty of God, have no disdain or uh, dismissive spirit toward the, the saints who are lesser in glory. It's hard for us to think about that, but those who are lesser have no envy for those in higher positions. And that's the way it ought to be here. We ought to be a foreshadowing, a reflection of heaven itself, a world of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God's love for us, shown and displayed in the life and redemptive work of Christ, is the pattern for our love. As I said, Jesus tells us to love one another as I have loved you. And we read in the book of Acts that the Christians in that first generation experienced such love for each other that the world said, behold, how they love one another. I was reflecting on the fact that as I stood on the threshold of my teenage years, a song came out that became popular by... Um, and now I can't even think of her name. 
uh, Dionne Warwick in 1966. It was actually composed in 1965 by Hal David. Uh, the music was written by Burt Bacharach. Jackie DeShannon was the first to sing it. Dionne Warwick is the one I remember. There were other versions. But it begins this way. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little of. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. No, not just for some, but for everyone. And while I don't want to be hard on the culture, we need to be careful that our love is not a general and vague sentimentality. It should be a love that is conforming to the standard of Christ and the law of God. We are called, as Paul says in Romans 13, to conform our love to the law through the grace that God gives us in Christ. There's a little booklet that um, I was reading recently that uh, is part of a series, and that series of booklets published by uh, Puritan Reformed or uh, Joel Beakey and Ryan McGraw, the editors of that, said, as Christians, one of our greatest needs is for the Spirit of God to cultivate biblical godliness in us in order to put the beauty of Christ on display through us all to the glory of the triune God. Peter puts it a different way in his epistle when he says that we are to keep our behavior morally excellent. The word is beautiful. Our behavior toward one another ought to be such a beautiful display of the love of God and our love for each other that the Gentiles, in a day of visitation, will glorify God. Peter was giving us a key to evangelism. Let us love one another in such a beautiful way that when the Spirit begins working in the life and in the heart of an elect sinner called to Christ, they will glorify God and come to faith in Jesus. Paul here in his prayer is praying for the, for the Philippians that their love would abound still more and more in knowledge and in all discernment. This love needs to grow. And love, if you consider it as the chief of the, of the, uh, the work of God in our life, the fruit of the Spirit, uh, this love will bring forth a fruit of righteousness in our lives that like the uh, gardener coming into the orchard, the farmer to the vineyard, delighting to see the branches bowed down with rich, luscious fruit, the vines filled with fresh, sweet grapes. Jesus longs to see this in our lives. And so we need to be praying for each other that our love would abound. But we need to pray specifically that it abound in knowledge and discernment. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20, Paul says, Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. My first book about doctrine as a young Christian was titled, in understanding, be men. 
It was a, a survey of biblical doctrine. Our love needs to be informed and abounding in knowledge and understanding of God and his will. Paul prays in another place in Colossians that we would be filled with the knowledge of God in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. What that means for us, practically speaking, is that we need to know this Bible, this Word of God, so well we need to be so steeped in the Word of God that we understand and know the things that God wants us to know. To know God is eternal life. And Jesus said, you'll know the doctrine if you walk in obedience as we set out in obedient faith. We find our knowledge and understanding of the things of God growing and maturing. The Apostle Paul, or whoever wrote Hebrews, said this, I want to talk to you about Melchizedek and how he foreshadows Christ and his glorious priestly kingship. I have much to say about Melchizedek, but it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. He's writing to the Hebrews, to men and women and children who, who know the scriptures, who need to be more advanced and skilled in their use of scripture. He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Well, knowledge puffs up if we're not careful, but love edifies. And so if our love is informed by a sanctified grasp of biblical truth and biblical doctrine, we will grow in our knowledge of God and his purposes and in how to behave toward one another. Paul here in Philippians prays that our love would abound not only in knowledge, but in all discernment. There needs to be an ability to discern and approve the excellent things, or as Hebrews puts it, to discern good and evil, to know in a course of action what to do. That's biblical wisdom. Based on our understanding of Scripture, we know how to make decisions that honor God in our relationships. How do I respond to that brother or sister in Christ who has wronged me? I find out from Scripture that I'm to go to that brother or sister and try to work things out and to trust the Lord to bring reconciliation. The um, book that I've used recently in studying Paul's prayers by D.A. Carson shed some light on this in the chapter on this particular prayer of Paul. Why does Paul describe Christian love in exactly this way? Love that abounds more and more is plain enough. But what about love that abounds more and more in knowledge and depth of insight? Perhaps we will get at Paul's point rather quickly if we replace the phrase with the opposite qualities. Paul does not pray that their love might abound more and more in ignorance and insensitivity or in stupidity and ham-fistedness. I had to look up that word. Ham-fisted means to be harsh with people to hurt their feelings. Or in cheap sentimentality and myopic nostalgia. Let's not just be swept away in the current of that beautiful song 
that the world needs now is love. Yes, it does need love. God's love. Biblical love. Love that brings about uh, repentance and faith in Christ. Continuing with Carson, he prays rather that their love might abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. The ever-increasing love for which Paul prays is to be discriminating. It is to be constrained by knowledge and depth of insight. Without the constraints of knowledge and insight, love very easily degenerates into mawkish sentimentality or into the kind of mushy pluralism the world often confuses with love. Christian love will be accompanied by knowledge, that is in Paul's use, the, that mature grasp of the meaning of the gospel that is the fruit of sound instruction. Christian love is also accompanied by literally all insight. The all here signals not total insight or depth of insight, but rather breadth of insight. That is moral perspective across the entire gamut of life's experiences. Paul in Ephesians says we're to have the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's been a lifetime banner for me in my struggle to be uh, in relationship with other Christians across the denominations as we prayed for Melinda and her Bible study, praying for her to be patient with those who are coming along as babes in Christ on the milk of the word to lead them to that point when every parent delights to see that child taking his first bite of solid food. We long to build each other up. And as the Spirit works in us to accomplish these things, thirdly, this biblical love requires thoughtful approval of the best paths, the excellent things. I want to belabor D.A. Carson one more time. In his explanation of this, he says, the church is to see itself as an outpost of heaven. It is a microcosm of the new heaven and the new earth, brought back, as it were, into our temporal sphere. We're still contaminated by failures, sin, relapses, rebellion, self-centeredness, again, as Brother Keith prayed so eloquently. We're not yet what we ought to be, but by the grace of God, we're not what we were. He goes on a bit later. He says, this means that when Paul prays this prayer, he is praying for nothing less than revival. He is praying that Christians might be right now what we ought to be, what we certainly one day will be. The text teaches us to pray that we will test and approve for ourselves the highest and best and holiest things all with a view to the day of Christ. Christ is coming again. And we want and yearn for him to find an orchard filled with the fruit of righteousness. We need to choose the best paths. We need to affirm the excellent things. We can only do that by being consistently in the word of God every day praying and seeking God. There's a passage in Jeremiah that we'll touch on briefly again this evening, but in Jeremiah chapter 29, he writes a letter to the exiles, to those who have gone before, they're in Babylon, he's still in Jerusalem, and he urges them to settle in, 
and build houses and dwell there to plant gardens and eat their fruit, to prosper and to bless the nation of Babylon as well. But he says, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams which you cause to be dreamed, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. Jeremiah promises that in 70 years, God would move to bring them back, the exiles back to the land. But as we have settled into our own Babylon here, we need to be careful not to be deceived by the prophets and the, the poets and the musicians and the leaders of our nation are like these false prophets sometimes. They want us to accept and settle in with the culture. I drive a school bus and I'm finding this uh, displayed in the lives of my middle school and high schoolers and, and how I long for them to know the biblical love. How I long for their love to, to in Christ, abound in knowledge and discernment so that they can approve the excellent things, the best things. But the application here is for us as a congregation. We, as brothers and sisters in Christ, need to be in the Word. Our love needs to abound. We need to pray for each other and for our congregation that our love would abound more and more in knowledge and discernment. That's a, that's a concise prayer to pray. And we're only going to to solve our problems that we face in our differences and where we've been wronged and where we need discipline if we have that. And this will lead to a bountiful harvest of righteousness in our congregational life. There are some principles that I have found to be helpful over the years in dealing with differences among Christians across denominational lines as well as with my brothers and sisters in the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North. We have controversies, and we have to face them in a godly and mature way. And I wonder sometimes if we're not finding a solution to things like whether we should use wine or grape juice in communion because we haven't prayed fervently for our love to abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. I believe we can find a way to resolve this controversy. It was 20 years ago that I sat on the committee in Synod to deal with this very question. And we recommended that while it's not ideal, a split tray helps to honor the conscience and the conviction of those who believe it should be fermented wine and of those that believe it should be grape juice or unfermented wine. I once preached and administered the sacrament of the Lord's Supper in a congregation where they had a split tray. And I thought, this is a wonderful first step towards preserving this unity in the bond of peace. But as the tray was passed, I noticed everybody was taking the alcoholic wine. Now, I'm sorry, I, I take that back, the, the grape juice. Every, all of a sudden, the grape juice was disappearing, and having taken a vow of total abstinence and all that, I, I was wrestling in my heart, Lord, what, what am I going to do? When this comes to me, if there's no grape juice left, what do I do? And I said, well, Lord, I'll take the alcoholic wine in commemoration of your death. 
in a clear conscience and out of a desire to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of to discern the more excellent way and to build up and not tear down. I have one last quote I want to read from a pastor in England who lived and preached during the 19th century. He was preaching these things about the time we were in our own civil war. One thing St. Paul was able to say, a life for himself and for them, the Philippians, that there was the strongest possible tie between them of mutual love. And surely, to be able to say this is no small matter, surely where a minister and his congregation love each other fervently, there must be something of Christ in that feeling and in that place. God grant that this may be more and more true with regard to us. Paul loved and was loved by these Philippians. And he showed and returned it by his prayers for them. He recognized and valued their affection. He felt that their love for him sprang out of love to Christ and showed itself in an active and diffusive charity. I'd like to read the whole thing, but uh, this was Charles Vaughn, a lesser-known preacher and commentator. So when Jesus comes, and even now in heaven as Jesus surveys the vineyard, what does he see? What will he find? Will he find faith on the earth, persistent, believing, faithful service in his name? Will he find an orchard filled with lush fruit on the branches? Will he find vines burdened with sweet clusters of grapes? Let's pray for one another. As Paul prayed for the the Philippians, and consequently approve the best paths in and through Christ, ones that will preserve our sincerity and blamelessness until Christ comes again, and in this excellent way promote God's glory and praise in our worship services even now. As we worship as an outpost of heaven, a glimpse of the glory to come, may the world look and say, how the springs were formed for each other. May God bless you. Let's um, stand for prayer. Please turn in your psalm books to Psalm 145C. We'll sing this. I have a habit of forgetting to wait to give the benediction, so we'll pray. We'll sing Psalm 145C, and then I'll give that blessing that we are so eager to hear. Let's stand for prayer. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for the Apostle Paul who taught us to pray for each other. We pray that you would help us to practice praying like Paul prayed for the Philippians, praying as he did. Lord, bless this congregation. Cause their love to abound in knowledge and all discernment. Grant them grace to make moral judgments and decisions based upon their in-depth knowledge of the Word of God. May they prosper in their new building and in this new chapter that commences in a few months. We ask 
for all these blessings and for your favor in the name of Christ. Amen. So